Chapter Seventeen of *The Hawk of Egypt* by Joan Conquest, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Seventeen, the hundred gated Thebes, where twice ten score in martial state of valiant men with steeds and cars marched through each massy gate. There was no moon to break the shadows in the great hypostyle hall of the temple of Amnon. Neither was there sound or sign of life. The winter residents and bird of passage tourists being duly occupied in the festivities, which are the order of the night in hotel life on the Nile, it is not actually dangerous, nor is it actually wise, to visit the stupendous ruins of Egypt alone at night. The native has far too good an eye to business to lurk behind obelisk or column with intent to spring out and demand the purse of any stray unit of the cosmopolitan hordes, which bring such wealth in the winter months to the land of the pharaohs. Rather not, far greater joy for him at full noon is palming off upon your guileless self the spurious scarab at a price three hundred percent above its intrinsic worth. Incidents of that kind do not occur in the great tourist centres, though worse, far worse, happens to the foolhardy or feather-headed in the by-paths and hidden corners of this mysterious land. But if you have the vision, the terrible silence of the past, the supreme indifference of the great ruins to the passage of time. The wonderful repose of the mighty blocks of stone piled in the days of the great pharaohs are apt to give a thrill to your heart and an impression to your mind which may last a lifetime. If you have not the vision, you need not worry, for you will not want to wander from the hotel lounge after your coffee to traverse these ancient wastes. Damaris had spent the last fortnight in helping her godmother prepare for her tedious journey. With the knowledge that she would have a fortnight, perhaps more, in which there would be little else to do than to visit the ruins, she had rushed through the principal objects of interest in the wake of a verbose dragoman, and then given every moment of her time to her beloved godmother, to whom she had said good-bye that very morning. Restless and irritated by the trivial conversation of girls of her own age, and the amorous tendencies of the stronger sex of the same age, and also a good bit older. She had spent the afternoon in the hotel grounds, waiting for the evening, when she could slip away by herself, having realized that the best time of all in Thebes of the Hundred Gates is that fall of night, when the shadows cast a seemly cloak over the vulgarity of the modern buildings, and give an air of romance even to the glittering lights of the appalling esplanade, which flaunts its tawdry modernity cheek by jowl with the quay, built by one of the Ptolemies, and in use even to the present day. When to the call of the muezzin from the mosque of Abdul Hagag came to her an hour before sunset, she went in, bathed and dressed, and dined in her own room. Later she stole out, ordered her car, and drove herself along the broad tree-lined road and up the avenue of ram-headed sphinxes to the first pylon of the great temple. There she switched off the lights, hid the starting handle under the cushions. And tiptoeing, passed through the first pylon and up to the broken kiosk of the Ethiopian Taraka. She walked quietly, though assuredly her footsteps would have been deadened by Egypt's sands, even if she had walked upon her heels, and stole through the vestibule to the second pylon, occasionally switching on her electric torch for fear of being tripped by fallen stone. She had not heard of the great catastrophe which had brought the columns hurtling to the ground. Due perhaps to the merciless greed of Ptolemy Lathyrus, or earthquake, or the well-known fact that temples, houses, or plans built upon sand are bound to crumble, nor did she wot of the precariousness of the walls around her 
or the shifting propensities of the foundations. She walked quietly because the spirit of the place was upon her, the spirit which puts a hand upon your mouth so that words shall not disturb the ghosts of the past, and which blinds your eyes so that you can look back upon that hour as on a dream. Yet as she passed through Pylon, vestibule, and the great court, she stopped and turned, went on, and stopped again to listen. There was no sound. Flashing her light upon part of a fallen column, she sat down upon it, with the purple sky studded with stars as roof above her head, and the sands of ages as carpet to her feet. And as she sat, so still, her thoughts turned to the man who had said he loved her, and who yet seemed so content to leave her quite alone. A woman may refuse a man's honest proposal of marriage, and have no intention whatever of marrying him, even later on, but that does not mean he need necessarily take her at her word to the extent of retiring altogether from the horizon of her life. As for the rest, the flowers upon her breakfast-table, her rides at dawn, about that she instinctively kept her thoughts in check. It was like the cut-glass bottle of perfume which you are not allowed to use, on account of your youth, the first few lines of the first novel you filched from your mother's bookstand that afternoon she was out, the first time you put on a real evening dress, and wound a fichu about your neck, before you opened your bedroom door. And as she sat there fell a little sound. Bits of masonry, as big as a bowl or as small as a marble, are quite likely to fall upon your pate in colossal ruins, but remembering the vague uneasiness which had caused her to stop and listen, further back, she sat forward and switched on her light. Against the wall opposite her, entirely robed in black, with a glittering jewel clasping a corner of the great black mantle swinging from the shoulders, there stood a man. There was no sign of the paralyzing terror which swept the girl. Her face, which had gone dead white, was in shadow, her hands under control. For a moment she sat breathless, then flashed the light full into the face of the man who had stalked her through the temple, then flashed it back to the jewel, then sighed an unutterable sigh of relief. The jewel was in the shape of a hawk, the symbol of ancient Egypt. Just for a moment they stayed in utter silence, those two who, for all we know, may have met and parted in this very spot, in the days of the twelfth dynasty, to meet and part and meet again. Then she tackled the untoward situation in the only possible way. Will you, as you promised, if the hours come, tell me the tale of the hawk of Egypt? She spoke sweetly, softly, switching out the light and Hugh Cardin Ali crossed the intervening square of sand, which, however, being one half his heritage, stretched an impregnable barrier between them, and sank to the ground beside her. The perfume of her raiment was about him, the sound of her breathing in his ears, all the love and worship of his heart was hers. Yet he merely lifted the hem of her cloak to his lips. The shadows pressed down upon them as he spoke, quietly, his voice echoing strangely in the temple of the gods. Behold, the hawk of Egypt looked forth from the shadows of the mountain fastness, and nothing stirred in the earth or upon the face of the waters. Wrong had been wrought, and the anger of the gods was as clouds loosened from their hands. And behold, the first sun-ray pierced the fury of the storm, the mighty bird spread wide its wings, which were as of ruby and of emerald and of onyx and of gold as they glistened in the sun, and sailed upon the wind of the morning down towards the plains." And as he passed, glittering like a jewel in the crown of Osiris, those of his kind, screaming defiance, spread their wings and hastened west and east. 
They would have none of him, for beneath the mighty pinions showed the white plumage of another race. And in the radiant light of day there came from the southern plains a white bird, crossing the hawk's path as a snowflake driven by destiny across the desert wastes, and he encircled her, lifting her upon the wind of his great pinions, higher, higher yet towards the eyrie in the solitary mountain peak. And as they mounted, those of his kind and those of her kind, who had followed, battled with him, for he was outcast from the one and the other. And the mist, which was the anger of the gods, closed down. The shadows seemed to deepen as the quiet voice stopped. And, said Damaris, gently, the end? That is on the lap of the gods. I do not understand. She had not caught the end of Lady Thistleton's chatter, else she would have been able to interpret the little story, and the man, who had thought that his parents' mixed heritage was a common subject for gossip in the hotel, which it was, sprang to his feet. The future still held the moment when some one would enlighten her as to the lowliness of his caste. "'It is late,' he said gravely in English. "'Perhaps, if you were to ask at the hotel, some one would interpret the little tale. And now will you not return, for fear they come in search of you? It is not wise to wander alone at night without a companion. Your dog?' Damaris laughed, the echoes binding the silvery sound, like a soft wrapping about the wounds and bruises time had left upon the ruins. "'Wellington? Oh, he cut his foot badly this morning. And I—I I want to go to the hall built like a tent. The great festal hall of Tutmos Third. The man made no other comment. It was not for him to offer himself as dragoman. "'Will you take me there, if you know the way?' "'Verily would I be thy guide,' came the passionate reply, "'to guard thy feet against the stones which will surely be spread upon thy path. "'Playing with fire? Yes, indeed!' Side by side they walked, the torch throwing a pool of radiance just ahead, until Damaris walked blindly into a column and cried aloud from the hurt of the stone against her shoulder. It was then that she stretched out her hand for support, and tingled to her feet, when sudden flames seemed to singe her fingertips as they rested on the man's arm. Through the central court and pylons and into the hall of records they went, until she tripped and crashed to her knees, and rising slipped her hand into the man's and stood for a moment with thudding heart, when closing fiercely round hers it seemed to burn her whole being. Hand in hand they stood, seeing, by reason of the gloom, vastly little of the columns which have the strange shape of tent-poles, then walked warily and still hand in hand out of various and dilapidated chambers. I—I I don't want to go back, but I think it must be very late, so— they were standing near the chapel with a granite altar as she spoke, and had turned to retrace their way when she flashed her light upon a flight of steps. Strange is the fascination and desolation of steps leading to an empty dwelling, and almost as mysterious as the door ajar in an empty house. She stood in the little room and swept the light across the walls, upon which are represented the animals and flowers brought from Syria century upon century ago. Then the light, which had been growing dimmer and dimmer, went out. And it was the man this time who tackled the situation. I am your guide. I know the way in the dark. He spoke in English as he swept the girl into his arms, carrying her like a feather down the great temple, where perchance he had held her against his heart century upon century ago, even when the flowers and animals had been brought from Syria. May I drive you home? I should love to, he said, as he placed her on her feet near the car. He spoke in English with an eagerness out of keeping with the trivial request, 
which was merely the expression of a desire to be with her under commonplace circumstances. "'Please do. I don't think I could. I am so tired.' The gaffer was accustomed to the strange habits of the white people, but although most drunken with slumber, he peered closely and furtively at the driver. "'Thank you so much,' said Damaris, gravely, with her hand against a mark upon her cheek, caused by the pressure of an amulet made of a scarab-shaped emerald in a dull gold setting, and which Hugh Cardin Ali wore night and day above his heart. "'Is there anything else as wonderful to see as the temple?' Der el Bahari. The man spoke curtly, and made no further comment. Not for him was it to offer himself as a guide. "'Ah, yes, of course. But people do go to it in crowds, and one has to follow behind a guide in a procession. One is not obliged to return with the crowd, nor to listen to the dragoman, who knows nothing about the incense-trees of Punt, which were planted upon the terrace to perfume the air under the light of the full moon, in the days of Queen Hatshepsut. With apparent abruptness she ended the conversation. I share my godmother's great faith in you. Good night. She put out her hand as he salaamed with hands to brow and lips and heart. Perhaps that was why he failed to see it. Or was it, perhaps, that he still felt the softness of her against his heart? If you are dying of thirst, one drop of water will not assuage you. End of chapter 17 Read by Sibella Denton For more information, please visit LibriVox.org